This week on FX Guide TV. We're once again at SIDGRAPH Asia looking at more of the technical papers as well as some of the production presentations. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to our second FX Guide TV from SIGGRAPH Asia in Hong Kong. This week we'll be covering both technical papers and some of the production talks, in particular the talks from Industrial Light and Magic in Singapore. But first, I think we kind of lost Mike in the emerging tech exhibits again at the Hong Kong Convention Centre. Right, and well, as you can see there, we were hanging out at the Emerging uh, Technology. It's an area we like to look at every year at SIGGRAPH, be it in uh, Los Angeles or in America, sorry, or in Asia. And this year was no different. There were some really bizarre ones as well that I couldn't really film very well. I don't know how to explain them other than to tell you about them. There was one where you, as you ate, you could tell where your jaw was, I think, as you can see in this still photo. And, and it played you the wrong sound. So as I bit in, as I think in, I was eating jelly babies here, as I bit into the jelly babies, they actually cried out in anger or in angst, uh, which was horrendous. And then there were other ones that were squelching when you're expecting crackling sounds like on potato chips. I had no idea how much you use sound uh, to perceive taste when eating. And there were some other great ones, just bizarre and interesting things. So I applaud all the, uh, the scientists that uh, came up with the uh, kind of things that go into these perhaps less than obvious uh, uses of technology. Well, to get back to a slightly more serious side, um, in addition to some of the technical papers, and we're going to cover one more this week, and we obviously covered some last week, uh, there are the production papers, and these are areas where people come and talk about real productions. And ILM this year, especially ILM Singapore, was there in force with, I think, three or four major presentations on uh, Transformers, uh, Pirates, a bunch of stuff, including also one that we've put over as an audio-only podcast or on our FX podcast, which was to do with rigging, which was uh, fascinating. But I caught up with, uh, firstly, with Moen, but you're actually going to see a package of uh, interviews here we did with the team from ILM. So you're here at uh, SIDGRAPH Asia. How important is SIDGRAPH Asia on the kind of general uh, radar, I guess, of ILM? Is it increased in importance? Absolutely. I mean, uh, SIDGRAPH Asia has only been around for, I guess it's the fourth time it's happening. And uh, you can see that every year it's, it's growing and uh, the industry certainly in, in Asia is growing as well. Um, going from a few years ago where there was more of a focus on computer animation, now increasingly seeing more and more high-end visual effects as well, so it's playing a bigger role for us. And interestingly for ILM, it's going to Singapore next year, which of course is your home turf. Coming, coming back to Singapore, first SIGGRAPH Asia was there and uh, it's definitely been a big change for us as well. I think uh, last time um, SIGGRAPH Asia was in Singapore, we only had about 45 artists in the ILM Singapore group. Um, now it's close to 150. So, Because at that time, and I was at SIGGRAPH Asia in Singapore, the, the main focus, I guess, from the Lucasfilm point of view was the Clone Wars animation mm -hmm. stuff going through. But 
Just spinning our attention now to the work that ILM Singapore does. You've done a lot of work, and here we're actually talking about uh, pirates here at, uh, at SIGGRAPH Asia. Yeah, um, nowadays we basically get involved in almost all of the projects that ILM works on in San Francisco, and uh, increasingly trying to um, sort of bite off whole chunks of it, uh, get whole sequences um, that we can really work on autonomously and um, uh, not just help out on work that's being done in San Francisco, but really have uh, our own artists and supervisors uh, contribute creatively to the work and uh, help out in that in that sense as well. That's a really important point, isn't it? That Singapore is able to fully integrate in the sense that it can work in conjunction with what's happening in California, but also you can just take your own shots. I mean, you've been a supervisor on set on major films yourself. Yep. Um, is there a, a world in which they, uh, is there any kind of rule of thumb whether you become you know, a partner or you sort of take shots? I mean, how do you sort of divide the work up? I think one of the great things is really that we have this flexibility that um, we're using all the same tools, we're on the same network, we have, we're able to move you know, data back and forth fluidly. And so really, whatever the demands of the project are, um, we're, we're able to accommodate that. So in some cases, like uh, you know, on Pirates, we were able to take on a couple of like, full sequences autonomously, where San Francisco really just um, went, okay, here, go ahead, figure it out, come up with some cool visual ideas, and then just um, you know, showing them back to uh, Ben Snow, the supervisor in San Francisco. In other cases, um, like on the Transformers franchise, the work was much more uh, interwoven, where uh, in the sequences it would cut back and forth between a San Francisco shot and a Singapore shot. And it's really, um, at any point, trying to take uh, advantage of the resources that we have and use them most efficiently. One of the points the recruiters made, I know when you're setting up Singapore, is that you would be your own shop. In other words, don't go and try and get a job in Singapore if you really want to get a job in California. And, and that's really borne out by some of the work you've been showing here at SIGGRAPH. Can you tell us about some of the shots that you've actually been talking about as part of the uh, presentations? One of the fun opportunities we had at ILM Singapore is that we worked on these uh, two sequences of ships and bottles. And uh, the idea is basically that Blackbeard, um, the main bad guy in the movie, has the ability to, um, when he captures ships as a pirate, to shrink them down and put them in these bottles that he collects. And uh, Rob Marshall's idea was that when he captures these ships, it's not just the ship that's shrunk down, but also a part of the environment that the ship was captured. Yeah, it had in. like crashing waves and stuff in the bottles. Yeah, so the idea was that if Blackbeard captured a ship in the middle of a storm, then there'd be like stormy seas and lightning in the bottle. If he captured another ship in a battle at sunset, it'd be sunset lighting and uh, cannon fire in the bottle. And so it was nice. We really had a lot of creative freedom there. Uh, there was. I believe about 30 bottles in the cabinet that um, you know Blackbeard has on his ship, and uh, Rob Marshall was really open to us bringing a lot of our own creative ideas in there. So we would just try out different things, have like a snowstorm in one bottle, a sunken ship with like fish swimming around it in another, and um, just show them. And, and Rob would basically pick the ones that he liked. And what fluid solver did you use for the liquid in the bottles, for example? Because I know in the Mermaid in the box. I think they ended up going to Nyad on some of those shots. We, we um, used the ILM fluid solver based on the FizzBam system from uh, Stanford uh, for the, the water simulations there. And then um, Plume, our uh, GPU accelerated uh, fluid solver for uh, mist uh, smoke type simulations. I joined ILM Singapore about two years ago and it has changed quite dramatically since I've joined. Um, when I first started there was about 50 artists at the studio and we were doing mostly parts of shots, not entire shots. 
Um, since that time, we're now doing full shots and full sequences in some instances. Uh, we do have pretty much a 24-hour production cycle. Our morning is San Francisco's afternoon, so there's about two hours of overlap that allow myself as the supervisor of the project to work with the guys in San Francisco to go over our, our what we've done the day before, what we're planning on doing that day, to make sure we're all working in the same direction. I think you described it as being at the end of a very long corridor, is that right? Well, that's Moen's, uh, Moen Leo, our studio supervisor, likes to say that uh, we're basically, you can pick up the phone and call somebody from San Francisco just by dialing their extension. So it is like being at the end of a long corridor. We use a lot of Skype sessions where we talk to each other at video conferencing um, and get on the phone quite a lot to talk to individuals um, just to keep the communication flowing. One of the things that we were discussing, or that you were discussing in your talk, was the uh, very heavy nature of some of the assets that are being used in uh, Transformers Dark Side of the Moon. How do you deal with that in terms of uh, that asset management over the two locations? Well, we um, assets kind of come in, in several formats for us. One is models and textures, and the other are shot-specific assets. Uh, when we're dealing with a model that is being used across sequences or across the two different locations, uh, we have a very strong asset management database that has been developed in-house to help track iterations. and. It knows when two people are working on the same model, so it keeps us from overriding each other's work. We do, in many instances, if there is a close-up on a character, we'll do shot-specific work to an asset to paint more detail under the eyes or things of that nature just to make it work for close-up. Um, but communication is key. Uh, artists have to talk to each other, and we really do try to make it uh, feel as if we are as close as possible. Most of the artists in San Francisco know the artists in Singapore. They pick up the phone and call if they know that somebody's working on the same shot. They will send us back reference pictures for things they're using for uh, adding detail, and we'll do the same for them. So it really is a very collaborative. One of the things I was interested about in the talk that you're giving today is you mentioned the use of uh, mental ray, which kind of surprised me because, of course, I associate in my mind, as I think many do, RenderMan is uh, very closely associated with ILM. And let's face it, over the years, you've jointly won uh, technical Oscars between the work that uh, ILM has contributed into Pixar's RenderMan. Mm -hmm. um, why go with uh, mental ray? Well, Mental Ray is an excellent uh, ray tracing solution. And for a lot of these characters, um, especially since we're working in stereo, reflections have, are a large part of what make up the look of these characters, as well as uh, what makes up the look of these giant skyscrapers, because they are basically reflecting the environment around them, and it is much more efficient at uh, ray tracing. Uh, we did side-by-side -side comparisons to try to uh, see if RenderMan would work or if Mental Ray would work, um, and after a lot of testing, it was decided, at least for the building slide sequence, to do the skyscraper and the giant chrome uh, uh, character in uh, a ray tracing package, mental ray. Because uh, Pixar, I guess, would say that RenderMan's a hybrid solution. Yes. Um, and I presume your shader library was obviously heavily reliant, though did that vary with going to stereo? Because obviously you can do stereo shaders for RenderMan, and did you have to worry about moving shaders over or looks over to, uh, to mental ray? Uh, we did. Um, ILM 
is never complacent with what they're doing currently. We're constantly trying out new renders. Uh, we, when we worked on Iron Man 2, we were working with other vendors as well that were not using RenderMan. So we created Iron Man uh, himself in both RenderMan and Mental Ray and did side-by-side -side renders to make sure that they would match to each other. So much of that shader development had already been done on a much smaller scale for previous projects. Uh, we really wanted to push the envelope. In almost every movie that we work on, we find one or two things that uh, we experiment with to try something new, just so we're not redoing the same thing that we've already done. I'm glad you mentioned Iron Man because one of the things you're also talking about today was a sophisticated level that you've got to at ILM with the lighting, which a lot of which has been a progression over time. Certainly Iron Man was a key film in that evolution to get to a point now where you've got a very sophisticated and, and sort of more natural lighting approach. Can you talk about that briefly? Well, that is something that over the years, I think one of our supervisors, Ben Snow, has been most key in dealing with um, some of his shows have taken the biggest leaps like Iron Man and then Terminator 3 was another one where um, we spent a lot of time rewriting our shader models to uh, use uh, global illumination and important sampling to try to be more physically accurate um, from the offset with really the idea being that if you can get something to match to the plate right away, you can get to the point where you can art direct it very quickly. Um, our artists are really good at observing and matching reality, uh, but it is really our job to then augment that reality and uh, focus the viewer on what they should be looking at. So we do a lot of like rim lights or small uh, key lights that might hit parts of the face just to try to focus the attention of the audience on where we want them to be looking. And I think our shading it has a lot to do with that. If I'm not mistaken, you guys were involved with the uh, point solution that is the basis of the uh, color bleeding for the RenderMan solution. So yeah. do you personally have a preference? Because obviously as you get to the global illumination kind of thing, it's obviously more relevant to a ray tracer than it is to the right. scanline approach. Well, we are using a, um, a hybrid approach to dealing with that. I mean, we are baking our illumination into point clouds and tracing to those, which is somewhat similar to using a ray tracing solution for global illumination. Um, but what it has really given us is the ability to uh, get the basic environment lights uh, across a sequence put together very rapidly. So uh, we can bring, we're starting to work in more of a sequence approach to shots rather than uh, lighting each shot individually, trying to bring a whole sequence up so that um, you can help editorial to figure out the story they're trying to tell and try to get the sequence locked as soon as you possibly can uh, before you start to polish individual shots. One of the things I really liked about the breakdowns you showed today is that when we got to the 3D renders, it looked good, but then obviously as the compositors did their final polish, they became excellent, they became really real. I'm wondering, what, what do you think, I mean, is happening in that last bit? Because you almost, I think, on the stage, you kind of, they were referring to kind of, well, they do their magic. But what is it that those compositors are doing, given that there's so much accuracy in the lighting that the 3D is already doing? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I really appreciate about industrial light and magic is our CG renders look really good. Uh, a lot of places do a lot of lighting in the composite. Um, when I'm working with artists, a lot of the conversations I'm having with the compositors is about don't touch the CG until the lighters are done with it, and then we'll let you do that final balancing pass. 
Um, the compositors are really looking for things like making sure the black levels match at every point in the scene. So if there is haze in the environment only on the left-hand side of frame, they're hazing up only the left-hand side of frame. They're gamming up the plate, gamming down the plate, leveling things around to make sure that uh, in the mid-tones and the shadows everything matches as well as in the highlights. There's some instances where they might tint highlights on one side with uh, you know, soft mats or something just to uh, fake a little bit more refraction around the Fresnel edges and things of that nature. On uh, Transformers, a lot of it was about adding uh, lens flares and what we called bling, which are subtle glows um, off of uh, highlights that are hitting metal. Because just about every metal, when you look at it in a high contrast environment, has some kind of uh, haze or flare that's wrapping around it. So the uh, other thing about the show we haven't really touched on much is the fact that it was in stereo, and that makes it difficult for one team in particular, which is, I, I guess, the Roto team, because you know everything has to work at a much more accurate level. I guess the match movers uh, are key to that as well. Yeah. Um, in Singapore, you know, what were the sort of tools that you're using for both the Roto and then leading into that to the compositing? Uh, well, the stereo did cause a lot of issues, and you are correct, it wasn't linear against all departments. I think Roto was hit very hard. We do a lot of work in our layout department to uh, prepare the plates before we actually even start to work on them. Um, because of the way uh, stereo photography is done, you frequently have polarizing issues where you'll have highlights or reflections in one eye that aren't in the other. You also have differences in uh, lens distortion that needs to be corrected for, and in some instances cameras might get bumped so they're slightly out of alignment. So we go through an alignment phase in layout to try to get the plates to line up as best they can. And that helps us out a lot in Roto later because we can Roto um, on one eye and then use disparity maps to generate the right eye, which basically defines pixel by pixel where it should be mapped to the right eye. Um, Is that your disparity maps or are you using Ocular? Because I know you used Ocular on Avatar. Yeah, we generally use uh, Ocular to create the uh, disparity maps from the beginning and then we'll um, utilize them again later uh, as a displacement source. Uh, in the composite or through rotoscoping. I think layout gets hit very hard, probably more than, takes probably more than twice as long to match move a stereo shot than it does a mono. Yeah, and of course they'd have to do the match moving before they did the corrections, otherwise the corrections presumably would interfere with the solutions if you were doing them, especially um, through a disparity map. Yes, yeah, it was one of the things that we learned was, uh, I mentioned in the speech, we try very quickly to turn around what we call post-vis, which enables the editors and director to see characters in the environment and to start to work on their edit. Um, and for that reason, we sometimes do very quick first passes at layout, which uh, when you go back to tighten things up, can be very dangerous to do because the camera will end up moving a little to the left or moving back a couple of feet. And you end up having to go back and fix things that uh, if you hadn't done a quick first pass, you wouldn't have made that trouble for yourself in the first place. Well, uh, speaking from the global perspective, probably the biggest issue is, is really it's the, the, the global aspect of it. It's uh, making sure, basically the way that we have things split across the studios is, is we have people working on the same projects, the same shows, in both studios, and we've built up the capabilities in Singapore to the point where we can do any, anything, basically all the same tasks. So all, the environment has to be identical in both places just because of the, the sort of assumptions built into our tools and pipeline. So keeping everything in sync and getting all of the data, the shot data, the, the geometry, the assets, the takes of movies over across the ocean in time, only sending only as much as you need and getting it you know, in the right place so that when someone comes in for dailies at eight o'clock in the morning, 
everything they need is there. You, you, you miss that time window, you've lost 24 hours, you know, because people move on with their day. Uh, so it's really the, 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 the biggest challenge is making sure that we send everything we need to, but not more, <laughs> because there's only so much bandwidth, there's only so much disk space. Um, Etc. So that's that's where most of our focus goes on in the world. Of yeah, because I mean, it, it seems like a trivial problem, right? You just think, oh, I want to sync stuff. But I mean, it's the two time zones aren't in sync. You got to be careful about when you're syncing, and then eight thousand miles is is a pretty long distance, also. But also, you don't want to be syncing things like uh, <laughs> SIM data and stuff. Like, right. So no, exactly. Huge amounts of stuff that would have to sort of move around. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a great tension between you know someone uh, in California wanting to help someone in Singapore out with something. You know, check out my shot. Um, do you, send, do you just CP the entire dang directory or do you send over just as much as they need? How do you find out just as much as they, how, how much is just as much as they need? You know, it's actually a pretty uh, tricky problem. And it's, it, you, the, the question is answered differently depending on what tools you're using, what, uh, what kind of data you're talking about. And I guess in that score, Olympic really fits in with that because it's such an efficient data structure for moving between Yeah, the, the, the fact, that, and, and in fact, the fact that it's a, a single file that holds your entire frame range and everything, it, make, it, it really dramatically reduces the problem. You know this was the take of that animation, just send that file, that one. There's no external uh, dependencies, no external references. It makes it a lot easier. Well, there's one more technical paper that we wanted to show you. Uh, it was by Kevin Dale from Harvard, and this is an interview that I did about a presentation they made for video face replacement. So obviously in many films there's been a need to do face replacement. We've covered them extensively on FX Guide in terms of written stories. Um, and this is not a solution that covers everything, but of course at SIGGRAPH what happens is somebody puts out exactly this kind of thing, like a, an interesting piece of research, a paper, that leads to further things that obviously turns into something commercial. So I think this is great. It's obviously has limits as to how far it can take it and what it can do, but in terms of a, an automated process, a process that, well, semi-automated, I guess. It has some user intervention, but it's certainly not a very long and lengthy manual process like would done to be done normally. Um, I think this is a really interesting paper. Uh, I think the, the original idea for sort of video-only um, face replacement was uh, Wojciech Matuzic's. Um, he's one of the co-authors on the paper. It just seemed that uh, the tools necessary to do this without complex hardware were available and just needed some tweaking. And, um, and it was, it's obviously a worthwhile problem to work on. It has lots of applications um, for you know, amateur uh, filmmakers um, and things even beyond that. One of the first stages of your uh, paper is the idea of timing two clips together mm -hmm. so that they're in sync. Though, presumably, there's a limit to how far you can pitch correct so that doesn't become a problem, especially if you're dealing with dialogue, I, I take it. Oh, sure. So that stage is really only applicable to some of the scenarios that we talk about. But yeah, when, when it is applicable, um, it really assumes that the timing of the uh, input videos, the source and the target videos, are already pretty close. You have the same dialogue with approximately similar timing. Um, but if you do a face replacement, and it's critical that you have frame accurate relative timing between the speech and, say, something happening in the background or the actor's motion, that's when we have to do this uh, more refined uh, retiming stage. So you've got two clips now that are, as, as far as the algorithm is concerned, in sync, mm -hmm. um, how do you derive the face to allow for the different motion heads that obviously one person may nod down, might look up? It's not a simple 2D problem that you, you can solve this with. Sure. Um, so we track both of the performances with a morphable model, and the output of that tracking process is essentially a, a 3D uh, mesh for each of the faces. Um, so we have the geometry and we also have the pose for both those two faces. So um, with that, we can. Uh, 
project the, the video texture that we have, the texture from the video, onto this 3D mesh in the source face and essentially change the pose to match the pose of the target face and place it into the target video. So why do you need it to be a morphable uh, model? Why um, not just you know, make it to be... What, explain sure. the morphing targeting sure. stuff. Um, yeah, so the, the morphable model is, is really um, what lets us keep this uh, solely video based. I mean, we need 3D geometry for the actors. One way to do that would be to explicitly capture 3G, 3D geometry for these actors um, during the course of the performance, and that requires lots of complicated, um, arguably, you know, usually expensive equipment. But uh, the morphable model is the underlying technology that lets us approximate the shape given a video input only. So I've now got two faces, and I can project mm -hmm. the images over them. I now start to come to the problem of getting one face over the other. Mm -hmm. And here we really need, I guess, sort of vaguely the right lighting, because you're not doing a full sure. re-lighting solution, are you? Sure. Yeah, we don't explicitly handle lighting. So um, even if the tracking works, and even if the final composite um, you know, is seamless and has minimal artifacts, it still is not going to be compelling unless the lighting is pretty close already. If you just use the uh, straightforward solution where you use the boundary of the, the face mesh, um, you're going to get a lot of bleeding artifacts around uh, locations where there's a big difference between pixels in the source and pixels immediately adjacent in the target across that boundary. So you want to find a seam that minimizes the difference between you know, pixels on either side of the boundary. Uh, but that's not enough. Um, you want a seam that actually tracks the face. So we compute this seam that minimizes uh, the gradient across this boundary, not in image space, but we compute it on the mesh since the mesh already tracks the face. Um, and we don't do this on a frame-by-frame frame basis. We compute a seam across the entire video volume so that it's um, not optimal just for any given frame in isolation, but it's optimal and smooth and temporally coherent um, across the entire video. I mean, at a, at a high level, it makes possible what otherwise, or what previously required really um, you know, complex hardware. So it makes it this, this sort of face replacement um, effect available to people on a lower budget. You know, amateur films, um, you know, home users who want to add these effects to their home videos. Um, you know, there are some constraints to our application. The lighting has to match, the timing has to be pretty close if we want to do something where the timing needs to match in the final result. Um, but in a multi-take scenario, we basically have that. You have you know, the same actor doing the same performance under the same lighting conditions, um, all with similar timing. You know, shot close succession, and the director feels like maybe uh, part of one performance, you know, maybe the eyes and nose are best in one performance, but the mouth performance and the dialogue is best in another one. So you can com you have the option now with this with our method to combine those into a, uh, you know uh, an improved final result. So uh, where do you see the research going next? Like, what is it? You know, do you think that there's another place that you would like to take this in terms of? Uh, if we saw you back here at Zoograph in a year or two, was there anything that leads you in your interest in terms of further research? Sure. Um, again, the, the lighting problem. It's, it's an incredibly difficult problem. Um, and I think a solution for us would be, uh, I think, a relevant solution outside this particular application. Um, but uh, sort of approximating lighting using a you know, single camera video and transferring that lighting to a new video um, is, is a really tough problem and something that's very interesting and that we see for we see as uh, future work. Yeah, especially with sort of limited dynamic range to allow you to grade stuff to, to match. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's the reaction been? If you see, uh, have you had, you know, any approaches of people that are interested in seeing this and taking it perhaps to a commercial environment? 
Um, yeah, we have. Um, it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's gotten more attention than, than a lot of my other work uh, in the past. Um, folks have been interested in using it in their own projects, um, in their own art, creative endeavors. Um, and gotten interest from uh, as far-reaching as uh, ma ma magicians who want to incorporate this in some, not real-time, but you know, fairly quick turnover. Uh, they capture folks in the audience and they want to do some, some face replacement as part of a trick during the show. Wow. Um, so that, that would be cool. It, it would be cool. It would be cool. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it, it, the interest is, is, has been a, a, in, a, in a broad, broad range. Well, Angie, that's it for our coverage of SIGGRAPH Asia, other than for us all to wish you guys a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I honestly express our sincere thanks for all of the uh, amazing work you guys have done. As we mentioned in last week's one, especially those of you that have contributed to Insider at FX Guide, we really do appreciate it. So thank you so much for your support. Got some great stuff coming up in the new year, including Mission Impossible 4 and a bunch of other really great stuff. But back to you in Sydney, Ange. Thanks for that. And yes, just as Mike said, Happy Christmas. And we'll be back in the first week of January, bright and cheery, with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. The guys sit down with not only the ILM team, including a lengthy interview with John Knoll, but also with director Brad Bird. We'll also have all the new info at the January term at FXPHD, which is a cracker of a term with over 40 courses on offer. And finally, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash fxguidenews. But for now, that's all. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.